Good morning again. It's good to be here. I was thinking this morning, when was the last time that I spoke here? And uh, it's been about 16 or 17 years. So it's interesting, you get old enough you can say that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, the first time I ever spoke, I preached was in this church. Pastor Purvis asked me to speak. And I didn't really want to, but I said yes. And I remember, and I was remembering this last night, the, um, the night before, the Friday night before I was to speak, I, I got on my uh, vehicle and I was driving around, and I, I was kind of so nervous that I thought, Would they, what if I just drove off right now and went to Indiana or something, <laughs> and they couldn't find me? But I came home and I came here. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been a long time. Uh, we, our family moved to this area about 30 years ago. We, we grew up in the Reed City Church with Jack and Ray Seath there. And uh, as a little guy was in that church. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's always nervous coming to a new church. You know, you don't know anybody and... Uh, there was a there was a bit of a difference I remember in that church and this church. That church didn't have any pads on the pews, and so coming here you had some pads on the pews. I remember that. That was kind of nice. And uh, I remember as a little boy sitting in those hard pews, and uh, you know I didn't enjoy the sermon as much then as I do now. But um, it was about thirty years ago we started uh, coming here. Uh, attending the school here, and uh, as, you, as I drove around this morning, you know, a lot of old memories came back of going to school there and, and, and coming to church here, and you didn't have that yet. Uh, I came back after college. I, I attended here for a number of years. That's when I preached a few times, and then we built that, so that's kind of new. So I'm really, I was really excited to be here with you and to share the word. Hopefully you won't take 16 years to invite me back next time. But uh, we live in Grand Rapids now, that, or Grand Rapids area anyway, out in the country there. and um, So not too far away. Uh, we get up here quite a bit. but So really good to be here. Uh, I'm going to share with you a sermon about worth today. So if you have a bow your heads with me, we'll pray again. Dear Heavenly Father... Uh, we thank you so much for your love and watch care over us. So I just pray today that uh, you and your presence will be here. Please just send the Holy Spirit, not just to be in this room and around us, but in us, dear Lord Jesus' name, amen. I forgot to mention before my prayer about this pulpit. I always like to talk about pulpits wherever I go. And uh, it's always interesting to me the different pulpits you have. Charles Spurgeon once um, gave a really good the preacher gave a good, really good illustration about pulpits. In his day, you know, they were really big and ornate, and a lot of churches still do that. You know, some churches you go in and you can only see a head of a person; you can't see anything down here. But uh, he talked about the pulpit. You know, it looks so nice and ornate and, and wood, carved wood in those days. But he said, I often get back here, and it's true, I, I do this. I, and, and inside the pulpit, 
there's papers stacked up and books and everything is all disheveled in there and and just use the illustration to to illustrate how the outside looks pretty nice but then you come back here and everyone just shoves stuff around you can't do that with this pulpit though (laughs) you can see me through there so that's good it's transparent well, I wanted to tell you a story about Winston Churchill. I don't know if anyone's ever read anything about Winston Churchill. Somebody gave me, uh, years ago, an autobiography that Winston Churchill wrote. It's about six volumes, five or six volumes about this, all of them about that wide, if you put them together. And it's not of his whole life, but it's uh, about the World War II specifically, and, and maybe ten or so years before World War II, and then through World War II, and then kind of the aftermath there. And he's just writing about himself. And it's one of the most amazing books, uh, pieces of literature you ever read. And uh, he comes through as a very, uh, to put it mildly, he thinks very highly of himself. (laughs) And pretty much thought he was the most wonderful, talented man in, in the world, really. Um, and um, but he has a kind of an endearing quality in him that you you just can't even though he's so arrogant you, you kind of like the guy. Um, it's very interesting Winston Churchill. I read another book about Winston Churchill, but it was um, part of his younger life, and he really lived an exciting life all the way through. But when he was younger, he just wanted adventure. And I read this book on, on, on this part of his life. And uh, so he, he joined the army. He came from a very aristocratic, aristocratic family. And uh, joined the army and fought overseas. And, and then he wanted some more adventure. So he became a journalist. Tried to become a politician, but that didn't work out right away. So he became a journalist. And he went to South Africa. They were having, uh, the British was, were fighting the Boers in the Second Boer War. And he went to be a journalist just to be near the action, but he couldn't help himself. He actually was getting involved in fighting and at writing. and He actually got captured by the Boers, South Africans, and uh, who were of Dutch origin. They had immigrated, and they were fighting the British during this war. They captured him, put him in jail, and he's the kind of guy that, that in jail, he, he thinks he's almost the jailer, like he's trying to tell them what to do, and, you know, it's very interesting. Well, he was 25 years old when he was captured. Well, he, he decides to escape, and uh, he thinks this will be good for him, and he actually does. This is an amazing escape that he made, if you ever read about it, just utterly amazing. He gets on a train and goes, and, um, well, this was kind of a an important thing because he's this aristocrat. He's well known. They really wanted to c- capture him back, and so they put out advertisements all over that territory, um, saying he was wanted. And they gave a description of him, and I'll just kind of read it to you. He's an Englishman, 25 years old, about five feet eight inches tall. He has an indifferent build. In other words, he's small and dumpy. He walks with a forward stoop. He has a pale appearance, reddish-brown hair, small, hardly noticeable mustache, talks through his nose, can't pronounce some of his letters correctly. I mean, it wasn't a very... They were trying to, you know, they're trying to... Churchill, as he's making his escape, gets a hold of one of these handbills, 
And he did not mind the less than complimentary description. What he didn't like was the fact that they had put a price on his head and it was 25 pounds. And he thought to himself, I am worth much more than 25 pounds. And so he got pretty bad. And for the rest of his life, he would kind of mention this. He said, I'm worth much more than that. Well, how much is he worth? What is he worth? What are, what are you worth? You know, the medium household income for a year is, I don't know, around $50,000, maybe a little more. Um, the average someone may make in their lifetime is a few million dollars, maybe. You know, uh, it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 trip to the moon. I just recently read a book about that, Shoot to the Moon. It's kind of neat to read all of those facts and all that effort that went into that. They put they, six missions to the moon cost $23 billion. To put a man on the moon, $23 billion. But how much is that one person, that one man, worth? How much are they worth? Turn with me in your Bibles. If you have your Bibles, Psalms 49, right in the middle of your Bible, Psalms 49, verses 6 through 8. I have a King James here, but I want to read this in the NIV because um, it says a part of it pretty plainly and clearly. Psalms 49, verses 6 through 8. Those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches... No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. In other words, no matter how much you could give, it doesn't matter. You know, the owners of the great corporations of the world, Bezos and uh, Gates, Buffett, do not have enough money to give a ransom for a life. The U.S. government doesn't have enough money to give a God a ransom for a life. The question is why. Verse 8 says, and I'll read it in this version, the ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. No payment is ever enough. A life is so valuable, there's no amount of money that can buy that life. So how much are you worth? Because it says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, you were bought with a price. How much? How much would you pay? Now, young people, I would like to ask you this question to the young people. How much would you pay for your sister? (laughs) How much would you pay for your brother? How much would you pay for your parents right now? How much are they worth? Let's turn over to 1 Peter, our... our, uh, Text for today, 1 Peter 1 and verse May. How much are they worth? 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 18. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Now, it says in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things 
You were not redeemed with corruptible things. Now that word redeemed to us is kind of a theological term, isn't it? We sing songs about it. Redeemed, how I love to, you know. It's a theological term. But in the first century Roman Empire, it meant something different to them. That term redeemed reflects an Old Testament term to buy someone back from poverty or from slavery. In the old uh, Roman Empire, there were maybe 60 million slaves. Their whole economy was based on slavery. Many slaves became Christians and fellowshiped with Christians in these assemblies. They would have heard these words of Peter. And to them, it had a special meaning. Because a slave could purchase their own freedom. If they could gather sufficient funds, or if his master could sell him to someone who could pay the price and set him free, they could be redeemed. It meant being set free from slavery. Redemption was a precious thing in that day. So, let's read it again. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless Conduct received by traditions from your father. So Peter reminded them of what they were. Slaves who needed to be set free. Paul said in Titus 3 verse 3, You must never forget that you are slaves of sin. Moses urged the Israelites, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That generation that died in the wilderness forgot the bondage of Egypt. They wanted to go back. Not only that, Not only was it a life of slavery, but he says, from your aimless conduct. In other words, if you wanted to translate that a different way, a life of emptiness. A life of emptiness. Not only have you been redeemed from slavery, but you've been redeemed from your life of emptiness. The empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. You have been redeemed and set free. But he said it couldn't happen with things like silver or gold. Silver, now literally that just means silver or gold coins. Small silver or gold coins. He said he couldn't get enough small silver and gold coins to redeem anyone. Interesting, it mentions gold. You know, it takes around 10,000 man hours to, to produce one bar of gold. So in other words, if you worked your whole life making, producing gold bars, you make about 10 of them in your lifetime. But God was not interested in using gold. You know, God could have turned the whole moon into gold. Wouldn't that be kind of nice to have that ref- sun reflect on a moon of gold? But, and he could have made that gold moon and given it for your redemption But it would have not been enough. He had to give the most. Are you worth that much? Let's read it again. Verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, those coins from your aimless or your empty conduct received from your fathers, but, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot. Paul, Peter, not only reminded them of who they were, slaves in need of redemption, but he reminded them of what Christ did. 
And Peter is interested in something much more valuable than gold. The blood of Christ, were you worth it? The Bible says the blood of the Son of God, are you worth that much? Was it a mistake? Did God pay too much? How much are you worth? You know, we do so many things to prove our worth. And we have so many people sometimes that try to prove we are worth nothing. We do things. We go to school. We become something because of our education and because maybe we made some money. What kind of car we drive or we act in a certain way. We dress in a certain way to try to make a statement. I am worth something in this world. Because we think they add value to, to us. But if you want to know your true worth, don't look at your bank account, don't look at your car or your career, don't look at your life. Paul says, look to Calvary. Go to that cross and you will understand the true worth. God loved you so much that he could not think of you spending all eternity with him. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14 there in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke chapter 14, and verse 28. Luke 14 and verse 28. Let's put it this way. Luke chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus was kind of telling a parable here. He says, for which one of you, which one of you, intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it. Now, it's good to count the cost. If you're going to go do a building project or do anything else, make a purchase, sit down and count the cost. Can I afford it or not? Does it make sense for me to do this? Now, suppose we ask Christ this question. Did you count the cost before this plan of salvation, before you did that. Now think of asking Christ that question. What if Christ sat down and counted the cost? What would he see? Just using the Bible as a reference, he would count all of this cost. Think of Saul. God made him king of Israel. He was an insignificant man in his own eyes. He made him king of Israel. He becomes king, goes his own way. Kills 85 priests, consult the witch, and then dies. Christ saw that. He counted the cost. Think of just all the atrocity in history. Adolf Hitler, for one. He was a devoted man. He devoted his whole life to the extermination of others. Christ saw that, and he counted that cost. Every day, thousands of funerals that God goes to. People that never gave Jesus a second thought. They lived their lives for himself. Christ saw that. He counted that cost. Every night, billions go to sleep without a prayer of thanks and without a thought of praise. Christ saw that. He counted the cost. Now think of your life. I think of my life. Think of all the time wasted. Every selfish thought that runs through your mind. Every decision made without Christ. Think of the times we've rejected his loving counsel. I can see that in my life. Maybe you can in yours. Christ saw all of that. He counted all of that cost, that long list of cost, 
millennia ago, he counted that cost, but the wonderful thing about Christ is this. He added up all of that cost. He saw it long ages ago. He subtracted from that cost the worth of one soul, just one soul, and the difference was still priceless to him. That's the worth of one soul, priceless. Are you worth that much? Who can estimate the value of the worth of one person? If you want to know the worth, your self-worth, go to Gethsemane and watch Christ through those hours of agony, sweat like blood pouring from his face. Watch with him as he's lifted on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Look upon his wounded head, his pierced side, his mangled feet. And remember that he risked all for you and for me. And then you can estimate your worth. You are worth it. You are one of a kind. And you think about that verse, for God so loved the world. So many times we, we read that and we just say world, right? Yeah, God loved the world. But change the word world to you. For God so loved you. For God so loved you, he gave. Does God really care about me? Does God really love me? You remember a number of years ago, it was 2004, I believe, they were auctioning at Sotheby's a painting. And this painting sold what was then a world record. $104 million for one painting. And the painting was uh, just a boy holding a pipe in one hand, and he had a kind of a garland of flowers, a wreath of flowers around him. $104 million. The historians, the, art, the artisan, art historians said it wasn't really, didn't really have any merit or historical value except except it was painted by a 24-year-old Pablo Picasso, and his signature was on it. The signature of the artist gave it its value, $104 million, for an obscure painting by a famous man. Turn with me to Isaiah 49, verse 16. You know this verse. Isaiah 49, there... In the Old Testament, Isaiah 49, verse 16. The Bible says there, verse 16, See, it says, See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Another version said, Behold, I have graven you on the palms. I have painted a picture of you on the palms of my hands. That signature makes all the difference and brings all the value to you. You know, the Royal Mint in England and London, England, is something you can tour. They give tours there. And as you tour that place, you come to the spot where they have those scales. They have very sensitive scales that weigh money. You know, because the whole British system at one time was based on the pound and uh, pound sterling. And they show how sensitive in that tour those scales are. They place one bill of money 
on one scale, and they place another bill, same kind of bill, denomination, on the other scale. And the scale is so sensitive, and that money is made to such a uh, fine-tuned accuracy that the scale will evenly balance those two bills of money. But they are so sensitive, the tour guide takes a pen, an ink pen, and he will put his signature on that one of those bills. He places it back on the scale, and the weight of the signature, the weight of the ink from the signature, pushes the scale down on one side. They're so sensitive. The signature makes all the difference. The, if a boy with a pipe could get 100 million, think of your worth. When the God of the universe draws his, your picture on his hands, the artist of the universe creates a masterpiece of priceless value. So many of us think and have done things in our life. When we think of the great God of heaven, we wonder, how can God love me? Can he love me all the way? Maybe just part of the way. But it is good today to think that God loves you. He gave his son for you. He gave the most. He gave it all. And as we look to the cross, we see what we're really worth. You know, to, to contemplate our lives sometimes can be discouraging, can it? You know, we, we look at mistakes that we've made, decisions that we've made. But as we look to the cross, we see that our life is priceless. You see what you're really worth. You're worth so much that God gave the greatest gift in heaven for you. You couldn't be worth anymore. You are worth something. You are worth everything. It was in the Great Smoky Mountains a number of years ago. A young pastor and his wife were on a vacation, and they were dining in a little diner there in the Great Smoky Mountains. An old man approached their table. He said, good evening. The pastor said, oh, good evening. Uh, he said, are you on vacation? They said, yes. Well, the pastor under his, in his mind at least, was thinking, it's none of your business. I mean, who, who wants to go out to dinner and... This old man comes up. That's kind of weird, isn't it? So where are you from? Pastor said, Oklahoma. What do you do in Oklahoma? Oh, I'm a pastor. He almost wanted to say, leave us alone, but... Oh, you're a pastor. The old man said, I owe a great deal to a pastor. He pulled out a chair and sat down. <laughs> well, yes, have a seat. He said, I grew up in these mountains. My mother was not married. And the whole community knew it. I was what you would call an illegitimate child. And in, in those days, he said, it was a shame. And I was ashamed. And the reproach of my mother, it fell on me. He said, when I went into town, I could feel the eyes of the whole town looking at me, trying to make guess who my father was. At children, at school, the children said ugly things to me, so I stayed by myself during recess. I ate my lunch alone. 
In my early teens, I began to attend a little church way up there in the mountains. It had a minister who was both attractive and frightening. He had a big beard, a chiseled chin, and I went to hear him preach. I didn't exactly know why, but it did something to me. And every week, I'd sit in the back, and before the sermon would end, I would rush out the back because I was afraid I would not be welcome there. One week, all the people kind of queued up in the back, and I couldn't get around them, and I had to wait, and I felt on my shoulder a heavy hand. It was that minister. I kind of turned around to look, and there he was. He was looking at me. He was staring at me, and I knew what he was doing. He was trying to guess who my father was. And a moment later, he said, Well, boy, you're a child. And he paused, and I knew it was coming. I knew I would be embarrassed. I knew I could never come again. My feelings would be hurt. He said, Boy, you're a child of God. He said, I see a striking resemblance, boy. Then he swatted me on the back and he said, now go claim your inheritance. He said, I left that building a different person. He said, it really, it was the beginning of my life. The pastor was so kind of taken aback. He was so surprised. He said, well, what what is your name? And he said, Ben Hooper is my name. It was at that moment that the pastor who was from the South, vaguely remembered that his father had told him about Ben Hooper, who had twice been elected governor of Tennessee, who had been an illegitimate child. You know, it doesn't matter what people think, does it? It matters what God thinks. Can you say amen to that? You're worth everything to him. You're worth everything to God. Would you like to say, dear God, today, I want to realize and thank you for giving worth to my life. And because of that, I want to live for you, with you for all eternity. You want to say amen to that today? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you today for all the worth in the world. So sometimes we get mixed up in this world and feel that our value comes from those around us when our value really comes from above. We thank you for that knowledge today. We pray, dear Lord, that Jesus will go with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.